Hello, welcome back to another episode of The Becoming from 90% Hoops. Today we have a very special guest. This is Coach Matt Dennis. He's going to be on the podcast today to share his journey and, and share some knowledge with everybody who's listening. So first of all, just want to thank Coach for joining the podcast today. Um, and so we'll get right into it. Uh, first question is, what was the inspiration behind you wanting to become a basketball coach? Man, this goes back to my my high school playing days. I can remember actually sitting down with my parents and then, you know, we're a junior year and they're kind of looking at, you know, what do you want to do when you get out of high school kind of stuff. And I said, you know, the only thing I really want to do is, is coach basketball. I loved my experience playing and I did, really enjoyed my coaches. Um, so that's kind of my earliest experience of thinking like coaching is something that I really want to get into. And from that point on, you know, I loved playing, but I was always trying to pick up, you know, uh, how, how to learn the game, how to teach the game. You know, I started doing some of my own little basketball camps and one-on-one -on -one lessons and things like that. Uh, so that, that kind of, you know, was a springboard for me really trying to learn the game from just a playing side to a, a coaching and teaching side. Yeah, talk about that time where you transitioned your focus from being a player to being a coach and, you know, how hard was it making that transition? You know, in, in high school, I knew I wanted to do it, but there wasn't really an avenue to do it other than just learning from my high school coach, um, which he, he was great in teaching things and, and we got along really well. We connected, so that was a lot of fun to grow, but... I was really limited in, you know, his system. I didn't know much outside of that. So my focus, I wanted to continue playing as long as I could. And I got the opportunity to do that in college. Um, and through, through getting hurt my freshman year and then transferring schools, I ended up at a uh, community college, Kalamazoo Valley Community College. And my whole goal was, you know, if I could play in college, I probably have a better chance of becoming a coach, whether I happen as a grad assistant or I just try to get a, a coaching job at another level, you know, high school or whatever. If I played in college, that's something to put on my resume. So while I was improving my game and becoming the best player I could be, I also had in the back of my mind, this is going to put me in a position to be able to, to coach later on. So when I played at the community college level, I did my two years and I was a sub. I, I mean, I played my role and everything, but I wasn't a standout or an all-conference player or anything like that. Um, I just did what the coach asked me to do. And at the end of those two years, our head coach said, hey, my assistant's leaving uh, and I need an assistant coach. Would you think about maybe just going to Western Michigan University, which was right down the road, just going to Western and going to school and not playing, you know, any, any longer? So... Uh, I kind of decided, I thought about it for a long time and decided that it was time to hang up my, you know, my shoes and um, go right into coaching. So after my two years of community college, I was hired as an assistant coach and, and absolutely loved that. But my college coach introduced me to a whole different world of basketball. I mean, the way he thought the game, the way he approached it, the scouting aspect of it, obviously there's a recruiting aspect when you're um, at the college level, uh, I really understood the why behind what we did and why we did things. And um, that really helped me explore the game in a whole different way than I did as a high school player, partly because I wasn't ready, you know, just mentally for learning all that stuff. My mind wasn't in that right space. 
Uh, but the other part was that he, he understood the game. I think my high school coach was tremendous, but my college coach uh, had a greater understanding of the game. And it was a really good teacher. So he was a lot of fun to learn from. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that experience that you had as a first year assistant coach at the junior college level. Um, you know, what was the biggest thing that surprised you in that first year? Yeah, I, I was a sponge for anything and everything that I could learn. So if it was um, going on a recruiting trip, just trying to learn the ropes of that, I'd, I'd never done it before. I'd been on the other side of it, but I hadn't really done it as a coach. So first few trips we took, I was just there to listen. Um, and in our first, I'd say probably the first couple months of practices, I, I did more listening and learning than I did coaching. Um, I, I had a great respect for um, Coach Schultz, who I had played for, and I wanted to make sure that I, I did things his way. I did them the right way. And the, the players, it was interesting because I had played with some of these guys the year before. So they're going from a teammate to now to that I'm a coach and, and they respected me as a player. So I never had a problem with respect, but it certainly was kind of awkward in the beginning. Like I'm asking them to do things now rather than doing them alongside them in practice. Um, but w transitioning from being a player to a coach, it was so much more about learning, asking questions and listening than it was about me doing. And my head coach was tremendous in allowing me to take parts of practice. And he'd be, all right, Matt, you've got these 10 minutes and you're going to work on this with him. Um, and why don't you come up with a couple of ideas? We'll meet tomorrow before practice. You show them to me. And then if we need any changes, we'll make them. But that's your 10 minutes of practice. So he kind of threw me into um, some coaching things where maybe I was a little uncomfortable only because I'd never done them. Uh, he saw something in me that, hey, you're ready to to take a little bit more of, of the practice time or your your voice is ready to be heard a little bit more. So he would ask me questions right in practice. You know, hey, guys, we just worked on this. Matt, what are you, what are you seeing over there? You're on the baseline watching these guys do this drill or, or run the scrimmage. What do we need to work on? So I had to be on my toes a little bit because he was going to challenge me as a coach and not just let me sit there or stand there and observe all the time. And that's where I was most comfortable in the beginning. I, I was an observer. And finally, I ended up coaching with him for five years as his assistant. And I would say about halfway through that first year, I started to get my own voice. And then after that, it was just a, a tremendous experience. We worked a, as a team more than we worked as a head coach, assistant coach. And just to give your listeners an idea, the coach that I was underneath had been a former division one coach. Uh, he'd been at the school at that time, I think, 20, 26 years. Um, he's in a bunch of Hall of Fames. And I mean, so I'm a guy coming in. What do I have to offer? And he's giving me this opportunity to say, like, hey, I'm going to step back for a minute, Matt. Why don't you do this? And that was just kind of it was a, a great experience, but also was a, an experience where I, I didn't want to let him down. He's got all these accolades. I don't have anything. So I got to step up to the plate. So I, I took it very seriously and very, it was very humbling at the same time. Um, so throughout those five years that you were the assistant coach, you know, how much of that was absorbing kind of the knowledge and the lessons and the philosophies of the head coach versus you trying to figure out your own style of coaching. And, you know, you mentioned finding your own voice. So just talk about 
kind of that balance and, you know, how difficult is it for assistant coaches to find their own voice and find their own style rather than just, you know, kind of taking everything that they've learned from the coaches that they learned under. Yeah. Well, my, my head coach was one who would take my ideas in and, and he was a tremendous listener. So I would sit in his office before or after practice and I would say, you know, hey, if we did this, it might, might work a little better. Or, hey, do you mind if I take these couple of players and we can work on, you know, a particular area that they're struggling in? And he was always very open to those ideas. So when I went into practice and I had my chance to, to run a particular part of practice or I had to work chance to work with some players on things, I knew I had his backing because we'd already done it. Um, you know, it's like the, that mental rehearsal or that run through on a piece of paper. And then we get out onto the court. I had a plan already in place. Um, so he helped me along a lot, but there were also times where I would go into his office and I'd be like, I, I tried this and it didn't work well. <laughs> it did not go the way I thought it would. And, and he'd, he'd ask questions. He never was like, Hey, you have to do it this way, or we don't do it like that. Uh, it was more of a, you know, what, what, what can we try different? Like what things can we do different to make that work better next time? And so he helped me work through that. So to your question of finding my voice, the second year was a lot easier because I'd been there for a year, but also the players that I had been teammates with now, most of them had moved on. So the guys who were coming in only knew me as an assistant coach and I'd recruited a lot of them. I loved the aspect of recruiting. I mean, if he'd tell me to drive three hours or four hours to go see a player, I mean, I was a single guy, I'd hop in the car and drive. You know, it, it didn't matter where I was going. It was, we're recruiting players. We're making our program better. So I was all about all that stuff. Uh, but that second year is when I really had uh, more of a voice. Uh, the other thing that my that the head coach did was the previous assistant coach only took stats on the bench. And that was the role that he wanted to have. So he would sit there with his clipboard and whatever stat it was that uh, was being covered that game, you know, he'd take it. And Coach Schultz asked me, he said, do you want to take stats or would you like to coach in the games? And I just said, Coach, if you wouldn't mind, I would rather be like watching the game, helping coach and giving, you know, input. And so it became my job to talk to players as they came off the floor when they got subbed out. And to, if a guy was frustrated or a guy was just taken out for a breather and whatever, I was the one who they talked to most of the time. I also was able to give suggestions to the head coach. Um, it was understood that it was just a suggestion and they weren't always going to be used, but he allowed me to have a voice and to kind of throw things off of him. And he would chat, he would chat with me a little bit on the bench. And I'd say, Hey, what do you think about putting Johnny in? You know, he might be able to guard this player a little bit better. And he'd say, yeah, he, he's a little bit better defender, Matt, but he doesn't handle the pressure nearly as well as Arthur does. So, you know, I think Arthur's going to be our, our best shot right now. So he always had a reason for what he did. And I really took that into my head coaching days of you have a reason behind it. Don't be afraid to, to say that reason. And he's the head coach. The, the buck stops with him. I'm the assistant and I make suggestions. And if he doesn't use them, that's okay. Uh, but he, he allowed me to have a voice in the bench. So all of those things kind of jumbled up together, made me a more confident coach when I was out on the floor. And it was a tremendous five years in figuring out how to coach the game. My philosophy and how I coach now as a head coach in terms of our strategies, our X's and O's, all of that stuff kind of developed a little bit later on, but how to teach the game, 
uh, and how to deal with assistant coaches and work with them really came from from my community college coach. So talk about how your first head coaching opportunity came about. Well, it's it's an experience where I look back and uh, I'm surprised I made it out of my first year. Um, I was actually five years as an assistant coach. And then I got hired full-time at the college and the college said, look, you can be the assistant coach or you can have a full-time job. You can't do both. And every, every college is different. Some colleges like the fact that they have full-time employees there at the school, whether you're a teacher, you're in the admissions department, wherever it was just so happened at KVCC, they, they didn't see them blending together. They wanted to keep them separate, which was disappointing. So I, I, I was married and had my first child at that point, And the full-time job was, what I needed for my family. Um, so I did that and I, I walked away from coaching for three years. And by the end of those three years, I had actually transitioned from working at KVCC into being a high school teacher, which is what I am currently still. Um, when I moved to the high school, the schedule was different. Um, they didn't mind if you coach in the afternoon. A lot of high school teachers are coaches at, a, at their school or at another school. So our head coach decides that he was gonna retire and that job came available. And so I decided to apply for it. And I'd been out of coaching really for three years. And um, they ended up hiring me for the job. And in my first year, I say, I'm surprised I made it past my first year. I didn't know what I didn't know. And it was a whirlwind trying to jump into the recruiting, the scouting, uh, assistants that had were first time coaches as well, first time assistants. Um, there was a lot going on. You know, I made several mistakes that if looking back on it, uh, I would have done things a whole lot different. The team went eight and 22 and most of our games we were not in. We, we were getting 20 to 30 point, you know, beat downs by, by our opponents. It wasn't real fun. Um, the one thing that, you know, the head coach who was there before me, Coach Schultz, he came up and apologized to me about halfway through that first year. And he said, I'm really sorry, Matt. And I said, what, what are you sorry for? And he said, I knew I was leaving and I didn't recruit any players to come in. And you came in. I got hired in June. You don't really recruit players in June for college. Um, and he said, I could have recruited a few kids, to, at least so you had something to go on. So we held open gyms that first year and recruited the very few kids who are still around that we thought we could play at our level. And uh, we didn't have the player we needed to compete as well as it was a bumpy road for me trying to navigate that first year. Um, so eight and 22 and things turned around after that. We went 22 and eight the next year and um, things were a lot better. But that first year, boy, I, I learned a whole lot just by moving over one more seat. You make a lot more decisions and a lot more things are on your shoulders. I enjoyed it, but I wasn't necessarily great at it in, in that first year. Yeah. So you mentioned how, you know, you made some mistakes that first year. Um, if you could pinpoint one mistake that led to the most amount of growth or the most amount of change the next year, what do you think that would be? Yeah. Um, there are two that come to mind right away. One was a coaching conversation that I had and one was uh, how I dealt with the situation with my team. And so I'll, I'll give you both briefly. Uh, the one with my team, we had gotten beat by a team pretty soundly and, and I thought we were better than what we were. I mean, it's just me being, my, my head being too big and not understanding that we just didn't have the players to compete with this other team. Um, and I actually had my team um, practice after the game. We, we got home on bus ride and I had us practice. We practiced for about an hour. 
and it didn't go well. It was a horrible experience. I would never recommend anybody do that. So if you're thinking about, about something like that, don't do it. Um, what the players really needed was just a chance to go home, go to bed, and you know the next morning we could go over areas that we could improve on. But being a young coach, I, I made a mistake, and um, ultimately, I think it hurt our team. I think it hurt their respect for me a little bit. Some of the players that they were, you know, testy with each other. So we probably instead of building a team, we we maybe tore down a little bit. Uh, so that's that is the biggest coaching mistake that I ha have ever made, in my opinion, and one that uh, if I could go back, I would certainly do things way different right there. Now, I still talk to some of those players and they brought it up from time to time uh, and they don't have this. The ones I've talked to have not had the same. They aren't as harsh. I, I'm harder on myself than they are. Um, but at the same time, you know, they remember the moment and practicing afterwards. So that was my, my team moment where I wish I could go back and do that with the coaching moment. One of kind of my coaching mentors, um, I was thinking about changes and things we were eight and 22 and I'm like, man, we got to change, you know, change some of the stuff we're doing on offense. I don't like the way the defense is being played. And he just looked at me and he said, Matt, you don't, nothing you're doing is wrong. So there's two things that you have to do. And one is you've got to recruit college players the players you have can't compete at the level that you need to compete at. And he was right. I knew that, you know, from, from trying to get these kids in open gyms that we were going to struggle a little bit there. Uh, but the second part of it was um, just, you know, once you get the players, you got to get them to buy into the system that you're, t you're coaching. And once they buy in, you're going to be just fine. Uh, and I, I didn't end up switching anything. We went out, we did get some better players. Um, we kept a lot of players, but we went and recruited kids that we thought would really work in our system. And I really focused on how do I build a team? And, um, and and that was a huge learning curve for me, but I think I did a much better job this second year and we, we turned it around to a 22 and eight season and we were in a fight for a conference title and all of that. So my players were better, but I think I was much better as a coach and ready to coach them that second year as well. Yeah, I remember reading um, in a book about Coach K, he used to make his teams practice after like a bad loss sometimes so <laughs> well i didn't know yeah. that so that that makes me feel slightly better that you know coach k <laughs> made that same mistake maybe there's hope for me yet um but boy that i did it once wasn't a great experience and uh won't do that again yeah no you definitely gotta learn from your mistakes mm -hmm. um but you know you mentioned how you know you needed to create buy-in and you know get everybody on the same page and believing that they could compete at that level. So in your opinion, do you think X's and O's really matter? Because it's more about, you know, having the right type of guys, making sure that they're committed to the team goals, they're motivated. Because I think anybody can go on YouTube or, you know, watch some film and learn different X's, you know, offensive plays or baseline out of bounds, things like that. Like anybody can learn that. So in your opinion, do you think X's and O's really matter? Uh, and, and your listeners, if they're, you know, just hearing this and not seeing this, um, I'm, I'm smiling as you're asking that question because you do, you go on to Twitter, you go on Facebook, you go on to, you know, TikTok, whatever it is. And you got all these plays being clipped out from college teams and you've got all these drills that are being done and everything. And, and they're great. There, there's nothing wrong with doing those things, but I won't say they don't matter because they do. What I think matters the most, there's two things. One is you have to really get your players to buy into each other and into you as a coach. 
when they will play for each other and when they start playing because they believe in the coach and what the coach brings, uh, I don't think it matters what system you run. Uh, the, the system that we run and I work with coaches from all over the country, uh, most of them are new head coaches. Um, but when I work with them, I tell them, you know, you can run the Princeton, you can run the dribble drive, you can run a read and react, you can run a basic motion, you can do a shuffle cut, whatever offense you want. If you get your players to believe in it and to believe in you, they will, they can be successful with it. But if they don't believe in it, you could have the perfect offense and you could, struggle scoring because they don't pass the ball enough because they're selfish because they uh, don't see the floor that kind of thing um so to to really answer it is yes i think it, it's probably like a 10 percent to a 90 percent. i think your strategy and your plays and things there, there's some value in there end of game situations out of bounds plays you need to be organized you need to be ready to execute that sort of thing but ultimately it's having a system and then having players who truly believe they can win in that system and and that's something that i've I've really been able to do. I coach at the high school level at Otsego High School, and our players buy in. We we have a lot of buy in. They play extremely hard. Uh, we are not very complex uh, when we when we play an opponent. I'm, I've never actually asked somebody how they scout us, but uh, if I were scouting us, I wouldn't say, "Wow, man, they they're really dom- dynamic in all these things." But one thing I've been told consistently about my teams is nobody plays as hard as your guys do. And uh, one coach in particular said, uh, you set the bar for how to get for teams that play hard. Like I'm telling my guys in my practice, we've got to get to Otsego's level. And that's what I want. I want our guys to play so hard and to believe in each other that other people are trying to play as hard as we are. And so how do you go about getting your team to play really hard? And when they are, what does that look like? Like, what does it look like when your team is just playing extremely hard out on the court yeah so i'll go with the first part is how, how do we get them to do it i have a belief that they got to connect off the court first before they can connect on the court so the first roughly 20 minutes of our practice is spent in our team room uh, and, and for other teams it could be in a locker room or it could be a hallway or whatever we just happen to have a, a room at the school that we can meet in so um we meet there and we'll do everything from the stuff you'd expect us to do, watch film, go over scouting reports, you know, any of kind of like a a night schedule for what's coming up, that kind of stuff. But we do a lot of team building activities. We, we play games with them. We have them get up and do talks. We'll have them get up and show maybe they break down the game film for a while. Um, We'll, we'll just challenge them in different ways to communicate with each other and to connect. Um, Some of the ones that a lot of teams do, I know are things like team dinners, um, or maybe having somebody come in and speak, we do that, that kind of stuff as well. Then we tra- transitioned on the court and what we worked on in those 20 minutes with our communication, if we're talking nonverbal communication in that first 20 minutes, when we get on the court, we emphasize, you know, pointing to a player who makes a good play, uh, knowing how to encourage a player in the right way. We can go and compete against them, but ultimately in practice, we're on the same team. So we need to be able to compete and be an encourager and to push each other in the right way and not tear tear each other down. Um, So we try to transition from what we did in the team room onto the court. And then it's a matter of the guys doing it. I I tell them when we get to games, guys, you know, I can want it as bad as you want it, but I'm not the one playing the game. You guys are the ones that are out there playing the game. You guys are the ones who have to dive on the floor. You've got to box out harder. You've got to sprint when you're tired. You've got to, you know, go for that back tip just a little bit, you know, reach out there a little bit further than you normally would. 
So we try to transition things that we've been working on in practice to the to the game. Very rarely do I break down what the other team is doing. I mean, we, we might, if they have a great score, we may say in the scouting report, you know, number three is a tremendous shooter. We got to be up on him a little bit closer. So we'll give him some of those things. Um, but we don't memorize a whole lot of plays um, in the scouting report. We don't, um, we don't break down their system. We get them to believe in our system. And then we get them to believe that if we play hard enough, that we've got a chance to win, we step on the floor and we'll do it through drills and things in practice, of course. But, but everything is about the belief in what we do first. It's not about, oh, man, we got to play them. Remember, they got to play us. So if we play harder than them, they're going to adjust to our game. And, and we've been successful having that kind of message. And our kids have really bought in. Communication is a big part of a team playing hard. So if you have a kids or a couple of kids maybe that, you know, they're good players, you want them to be, you know, integral parts of the team, but they don't communicate. Maybe they're just quiet individuals. So how do you go about getting them to be louder or be able to communicate more when they're on the court? Well, everybody has to communicate at a certain level. So if you're on the floor and we're playing defense, you know, we need to be talking about where the screen's coming from or maybe who's on the help side uh, or if there's something that we're seeing that's going on that the other players on the court need to know about. So we do ask the players that that's part of getting playing time. If you can't vocalize some of these things like a screen or if you're you're going to trap or something like that, then you can't be on the floor. We're not going to be good enough. So it, that goes into the playing time equation. Uh, and most of our kids have have bought into that. There are always once in a while some kids who aren't very vocal and, and we do things in our team room. That's part of it is using your voice. Uh, and be, knowing that sometimes your voice is the best thing. Sometimes a gesture is the best thing. Sometimes connecting with somebody with your eyes is going to be the best way to communicate with them. So there are different ways to communicate, but you guys have to have all these different tools in your toolbox in order to do it. Um, the best players that we have had are, have been great communicators. So not only are they great players and they're good athletes, but they communicate effectively on the court at the same time. So it's kind of a three-pronged approach. If you want to be one of the best on our team and in our program, you got to be, you know, got to have athleticism, you got to have the skill, and then you got to be able to communicate. Um, so it, it, it's not as easy as just tell them to do it, but we try to emphasize it in the team room, get them to go through some activities, get them to go through kind of like little lessons on it. We try to get them to do it in practice, and then hopefully they'll transition to a game. And if it doesn't, somebody else's turn is up to, to go in and see what they can do. And if they can do a better job, that might be the thing that separates them and puts them in the lineup. And the, the other person, they come and say, hey, coach, you know, how do I get more playing time? Sometimes the message is you got to commute. You got to be louder. You have to communicate more. Otherwise, you're letting your teammates, you're leaving them hanging. And we're not going to win games if guys don't know how to, you know, how to be on the same page with each other. Uh, you know, if you can just talk about your transition going from being a junior college coach to the high school level. Yeah. I, I coached for four years as a head coach at uh, Kalamazoo Valley Community College, and, and I loved every you know minute of it. Uh, by the end of my four years, my young family was now you know three kids, and myself, and my wife, and it was a lot of nights where I, it wasn't a full time job. So I'm teaching at the high school. I'm going to coach in the afternoons. You're scouting. You're recruiting. You're doing stuff in the, in the evenings. You're doing it on the weekends. Of course, you got games. Uh, they're farther away than high school games are, so you're on the bus longer. Or you're staying overnight places. So 
all of that combined, I did a lot of getting up early in the morning when my kids were in bed and getting home at night when my kids were in bed. And I did some soul searching and just said, you know, this isn't coaching is fun and I like to do it, but coaching is not who I am first. It is something that I, that I do. It's something I enjoy. Um, but being a dad, being a husband, those are the things that need to be my top priority. So after four years, I decided to step down from coaching and we'd been very successful. Like I had a winning record. We were in the hunt for three conference titles. We only got one of them, but we're in the conversation for three of them. Several players move on to four year schools. Um, just a lot of good things happen. So it had nothing to do with the win loss record or anything like that. Uh, so I, I stepped away and I spent a year just being a teacher and um, just kind of watching games, which was tough to do. That second year, the our local high school in Otsego needed a coach. And I got an email saying from a community member, hey, I know you're not coaching right now. Would you consider doing the high school level? And I wasn't really sure if I wanted to get back into it or not. But I I decided to apply to, to apply and got the job. And that was uh, six years ago go now. So I'm going into my seventh season. And what I decided at that point was I wasn't going to allow basketball to dictate everything I did in life. That's kind of how I did it at the community college level. If I'm going to win, I've got to do more. And you certainly have to work hard as a coach. I don't want to, you know, misconstrue the message. You do have to work hard and it does take time. But I decided that I was going to ask um, some of my assistants, JV freshman coaches, to jump in places and do things that they could do just the same as I could, but it would take it off my plate. Um, and that was that was a huge shift for me in asking other people to do things. Uh, I also decided that I wasn't going to make a schedule that was going to keep me away from my family, you know, basically during the holidays all the time. So we arranged a schedule, and it's still busy, but uh, in a way that was much more manageable and I could be around. So my mindset was completely different. Now, going actually to the coaching side of it, the biggest difference is you don't get to go out and recruit your players. At least in Michigan, we can't do that. Um, you get what you get coming through our system. You know, we've got one middle school feeds into one high school. And now I'm much more about building a program. And, and that's what I said earlier. I work with coaches. That's what I work with coaches on is how do you build a program? So a feeder system from your elementary to your middle to your high school. Um, we've done that successfully here. And we've won um, at a really high rate. We've won a lot of games and it's, it's worked. And it's something that I think other coaches can learn from and they can do as well. Um, but that was, that's my shift is if the kids have the skills they need by the time they get to me, the focus of my coaching now is how do I get them to do it uh, quicker? How do I get to do it faster? How do I get them to do it longer? How do I get them to really buy into each other? Cause we've got 11th and 12th graders now, not just one, not just one grade level. Um, sometimes there's a freshman or a sophomore pulled up there. They've got to integrate into this group. So how can I build a team as fast as I possibly can and get them to buy into what we do? They have the skills. They've got what they need. Of course, I'm still working on things with them. But uh, a lot of coaches, you know, they get to them and they're like, well, this kid doesn't dribble good. This kid is not a good enough shooter. Well, in my opinion, that stuff is built in your system, in your in your program as they come up. So we've put things in place to be able to do that. So when they get to me, now it's players, it's your chance to step up. This is, it's your court, it's your crowd, it's your team. I'm just going to put you in the position to do the very best you can. You got to show up and perform and, and our kids eat that up. They, they love that. I give them a framework, but they get to go out there and kind of control how things go. Yeah. Talk about, uh, 
the state of the program, you know, how it was when you first got there and, you know, what was the first thing that you were doing to either uh, change the culture, turn things around or kind of keep going what was already what was already in place? So the, the culture wasn't in a bad place. I mean, necessarily, they had had some winning years. Uh, the year before I got there, they were three and 18. So they did not have a winning year the, the first the, the year prior to me coming. Um, but before that, they had had a seven footer that came through the program and he went on to play at a division one at a division one school. And they won a lot of games. Anytime you have a seven footer who, you know, can walk and chew gum at the same time, let alone shoot baskets and have some post moves, you're going to be in pretty good shape in high school. So they, they had, and they had other good players around him as well. He wasn't the only player they had. They had other solid players too. Um, so they went through a series of about three or four years with this seven footer where they really wanted a high level. And then he left and the rest of the kids in the program had no experience. They weren't really ready to step up and they, they didn't win a whole lot of games. So when you look at that and you say, well, what's the culture of it bad? No, the culture of the program wasn't bad, but it wasn't my culture. And I think that's the thing that a lot of times coaches do. I, I'm always a little bit hesitant when I hear coaches talk about we're going to change everything as though the last coach didn't have any clue what they were doing. It's just different than what you did. It's not necessarily better or worse, but it's different. It's yours. So that was my charge going into it was to get my players to believe that they could compete that three and 18 wasn't what they were destined to be. If we would go in and compete every time we stepped on the floor, we'd have a chance to win games. And we did, we went 11 and 11 um, that first year and we lost five games by five or fewer points. So there were a couple of possessions here or there. We have a better record than that, but we ended up 500. Um, the, so from that point on, just to give your listeners how it went from there, we have won uh, five straight conference championships. So we went on a streak of 43 game conference winning streak. And that's without, you know, my tallest player being six, four. So we don't have dominant players, you know, in the post necessarily. Uh, we've had some kids who have moved on to play at the college level, some at the JV level at a division three, the highest level a kid has played has been division two basketball for us. So uh, we've got to do it as a team because we haven't had one stud that can just carry us night in and night out. Going back now to the program where the program was, the biggest shift that I made was with our youth program. Um, I, I gave myself a goal each year I was there. After my first year, um, I redesigned how the summer camps went. I wanted more participation. I didn't think we had enough kids in them. So I, I revamped that and our participation has grown uh, every year we've done it. So that's been tremendous. We actually get kids from outside communities who come into our, our camps now. And they don't make up the majority of them, but they do. They come into it because they like the experience they get when they come to Otsego camps. Um, the After my second year, I decided to take a look at how we do our youth league. It was a five on five league. Uh, I didn't particularly care for it because I thought one or two kids dominated the ball. When you play five on five at an elementary level, uh, the, the most advanced or the most physically um, developed kid is the one who gets the ball the most of the time. And the other kids stand there and watch. And that's what I was seeing when I went to our youth stuff. Um, so we changed it to a three on three league. We called it a skill development league and everything we do now is three on three. Uh, we go, uh, there's just check the ball up top kind of thing. So there's, they can learn plays if they want to, but we want them to learn how to pass, shoot, um, dribble the basketball, play defense and three on three offers that you can do it over and over and over and over again. We're five on five. You might be involved with one or two plays every 10 trips. You're not involved in every single play. 
that was a little bit of a selling point for our community. I, we went in and I got the buy-in from our girls varsity coach, I, from our athletic director. We also have three other communities that partner with us. So I had to go to those communities and try to sell that vision to them. They bought into it. Um, so they all participate in it now as well. So we revamped that three-on-three league and that I think has really, really helped us out. And then it moves on up. So from there, then the middle school does a little bit of what we do at the high school level. Not much. They're focusing still a lot on skill development. And then by the time they get to the ninth grade, you know, we really start to pour in what our system is, what our mentality is, how we approach things. So back to your main question of what did it look like before? I think before they had all the components, but they weren't necessarily streamlined all going in the right direction. What I've tried to do is make sure that our program is aligned so that everything builds on top of it. So by the time they get to me, I've got players to choose from every single time we have a tryout for that season. Uh, the cupboard isn't bare, so to speak. Yeah, I love I love the three on three concept. I think that's a great way for kids to develop, especially at younger ages. Um, you know, because like you said, when you're in a five on five, you know, they're the lesser skilled kids seem to kind of just stand around and not really do much. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're in a three on three, it's a lot harder to just play a role. Like we're in a five on five, you can only rebound or you can only defend. Whereas in a three on three, you kind of have to do little bit of everything. So it definitely promotes skill development a lot more. So yeah, yeah. I think I'm a big, big fan of, of three on threes. I, I would add to that is, and for coaches, when you're listening to this, you know, if you run a five on five league, I'm not against those. We have kids who go and play in five on five leagues that are, you know, in the greater Southwest Michigan area. And I think that's great. Come get your skill development with your youth team come play in the three-on-three -three stuff on Saturday mornings with us. And then if on Thursday night or Sunday afternoon, you go play in a five-on-five -five league, if from my perspective, you're just playing more basketball, that helps our program. But I know you, if you just choose to do the three-on-three, -three, you're getting that skill development piece. But what I was going to add to what you said is, if you go and watch five-on-five, -five, watch how many ball screens there are. Because 90% of most offenses at the youth level are set a ball screen for your best player. And then that one player gets to go and basically shoot the ball. I mean, because they don't really understand the role, man. They don't understand the spacing at a youth level. They understand, okay, I got it. I'm going to go shoot it. Uh, so we took that out of our three on three. You can't set ball screens. I think in the last, like ours is a seven week mm -hmm. program. And like week five, they can introduce a ball screen if they want. But the first, you know, four weeks, they can't ball screen at all. Because we want the kids to learn how to move. How do you screen away from each other? How do you cut for each other? How do you do different things than just go and set a ball screen? So we took that out of there on purpose. The other thing we did, and not everybody's comfortable with, is we took the score away. So we don't we don't play with the score, and that that ruffled a few feathers at the very beginning. But my what I said to the parents was go throw a ball out in the gym, and get six kids out there and say, hey, you're going to play three on three with each other and give them a ball. They'll compete against each other. Third graders, you don't have to teach them how to compete. Fourth graders, you don't have to teach them how to compete. Will they make baskets? I have no idea. But will they compete? They will. They'll dive on the floor. They will try to get it before it goes out of bounds. They will try to stop from somebody from scoring. They'll try to rebound. And I said, the score is only good for the parents. It, it doesn't matter to the kids. If they want to win because at the end of the game, the parent says, you did a good job based on whether you won or lost or how many points you scored. But the kids will compete if you just give them a ball. And that has been proven. We've done this now for five years. And I go to almost every Saturday morning and I watch some of the youth play. And I have never seen a team 
that where kids don't go out there and play hard. And the, the three, two, one, the end of the shot, you know, there's a buzzer beater every single time. But if you put a score up there and the score is, let's say that the teams are lopsided and the score is 24 to three or 24 to five or whatever, that, that end of the buzzer shot doesn't mean quite as much. The kids do stop playing hard because they're getting beat so bad. Nobody knows who's winning and losing in the games though. The kids just go out and play hard. Now in the middle school, yes, we keep score. I think score is important, but at the youth level, uh, I find that it, it only is good for the ego of the parent, and and we want the kids to have fun. You want you want to grow your program. Make sure that basketball is fun first and foremost, and then make sure there's skill development in there. If you take the fun out, the kids won't come back, so you'll get no skill development. So you got to have fun first and skill development second, and that's what we built our youth program on. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, some of those things I haven't really heard of, like not keeping score. But I think, you know, the the concept of it is is really, I think, could be really helpful for a lot of kids. Because like you said, you know, if they start getting down by 20, 25 points, they're going to not really try as hard. And so I agree with what you said, like, you know, most kids, they're going to just play hard naturally because they don't really know anything else. But then if you put them in that competitive environment where they're losing by a lot, now they might start to not play as hard or not be as interested in the game. So I thought that was really interesting. And the ball screen concept, too, was was fascinating how you don't allow them to set ball screens because most of the teams that we play, they don't run any ball screens. And with my teams, I, I do have them run some ball screens, only you know, one or two kids all allowed to run them just because most of the guys just aren't able to make the right play out of it. Mm -hmm. And they seem to work pretty well because most defenses at that level, they don't really know how to guard it. You know, most middle school practices are not going over how to defend ball screens. Right. So I think that's interesting. Um, but yeah, I think with the, with the like lower than middle school, like elementary level, you know, I think, them learning just how to pass and move without the ball and not relying on getting a screen and having an open shot. I think that's, that could be really helpful for, you know, youth development. Do you think that should be more, you know, just generally if instead of let's say like a travel, you know, playing on a travel team, do you think that that should be kind of the future of, of youth basketball development is kids being in a three on three environment or, you know, maybe even two on two or something like that, where yeah. they're learning how to, you know, play basketball, maybe in a different way and not keeping score. Do you think that should be more of the focus for, I mean, you know, uh, youth basketball development as a whole moving forward? I, I think it should. I mean, that that is a, a holistic view. You also have to, for your listeners out there, is I'm approaching this as a varsity coach who's building a program within my small community. I'm not running tournaments for people. I'm not trying to collect cash from people. I'm not trying to make this my full-time job. You know, so if, if you have somebody who is running even a three on three league, um, you know, they, they want to do it because they like kids and because they enjoy basketball. But ultimately if you're running a tournament or you're running a league of some kind, the bottom dollar is important. You're trying to make money. Okay. So you take the score away from a tournament. You don't have much of a tournament because there's no winner and loser in it. But when you're focusing on building a program in a small community like I am, then the score, I want as many kids in my community to play basketball as possible. 
how do I do that and make it fun? The score can detract from that at times. So that that's where the score thing comes. So I don't want listeners to think that you, you know, never keep score. I totally disagree, you know, with what he's saying kind of thing. You got to look at the, through the lens of a varsity coach trying to build his program, not somebody promoting something or trying to hand out a trophy or anything like that. Uh, now to your question of, should this be the way that it goes? If you're a high school basketball coach, definitely. I mean, I think that every high school coach wants to have skilled players coming through their program. And the only way to get skilled players is to get them to practice more. The only way to get them to practice or to enjoy the game more is to make the game fun. Um, so when you look at it, and I've seen one, one um, can't remember who it was now, one coach did some research on it and said in a three-on-three -three game, kids get 150% more touches on the ball than they do if they're in five-on-five. Five. That's every kid. So every kid is getting more touches on the ball. Um, and by taking the ball screen away, what we do is we make it so kids have to pass it to each other. The screen isn't there. So you have mm -hmm. to learn to cut. You have to learn to get open. You have to learn to show your hands. You have to do all of these things that are required. In our system at the high school level, we don't set very many ball screens. So it, for a kid to learn how to run ball screens, like, of course it's part of the game and I don't, they do introduce it. Like I said, like in week five, they have like in week five, they can do it. So they have week six and seven where they'll actually um, try to do it in games, but it's not something that is very big. If I ran an offense where we ran ball screens, I'd probably switch that and say, all right, let's, let's run some ball screens. Um, the other part of that is when you're talking at the elementary level, your coaches are primarily your parents. Some parents have playing experience, some don't. And like you said, you know, you're, you're a middle school coach who obviously it really enjoys learning the game and enjoys talking the game. And you have a high level of expertise in probably running a ball screen at the middle school level that most people don't have because of how you approach the game. My parents, they might just show up to the game or the practice one night a week, you get your hour practice and you got one game. So we've got two, two days and these parents aren't thinking basketball all the time. So how can I make their job easier and get the kids to grow at the same time? Well, you take away some of the complexities a little bit and teaching a ball screen. Some of them may not have any clue how to do that. Others might, but since we don't run it, they all know the, the concepts of pass and cut, pass and screen away, how to screen, you know, uh, for somebody down in the post. Those are simpler concepts and concepts our kids have to know how to do in our program. Uh, I, I definitely, you know, I like your vision of, you know, how, how players should be developed and um, looking through, you know, some of your, your videos online on Twitter, and Instagram, and, you know, you have some really cool stuff, what you do with team building. Um, you know, there was one where you guys were like flipping cups and doing these races. Um, so if you could just share with our listeners, what are some of your favorite or most effective team building activities that you like to do? Yeah, the one that you're referring to, we call it our Bulldog Games. And other coaches have actually taken this and, and run it with their programs, too. Uh, it's kind of neat to see them when they send me a little clip of, of their teams doing it. But basically what we did is we take our freshmen through our varsity team and we take about an hour of a practice. A lot of times it's over Christmas break because we got a little downtime between games. Um, but all three teams come together and they compete against each other. And all the games are kind of silly minute to win it style games. 
Um, so whether it's cup stacking or we have one where you got to throw ping pong balls against a piece of bread with peanut butter on it. I mean, any kind of silly game that you might have played in the past or something or you've seen online, we just we take them and there's a point value. So they, they have to complete the, the task quickly and then we have them go and you have to maybe make a three pointer, a free throw and a layup. And by, we have to do all three of those. So they all end with some kind of basketball skill of some kind. And once they do that, if they're the first team done, they get three points. Second place gets two and the last place team gets one. Uh, the thing I like about it is not, nothing. The games are silly minute to win it games. So a ninth grader to a senior, anybody can win them. It doesn't just have to. Your seniors don't have an advantage over this. Um, same thing with the what you have to do for a basketball skill. We try to make it simple so anybody can do it. Maybe it's you have to sprint to one end of the court, make a layup, and sprint to the other end and make a layup. Ninth graders can do that. Seniors can do that. So we try to make it so anybody would have a chance at winning. Uh, we I made this silly little trophy uh, out of a Power Ranger. We, we took off the, the basketball guy on the top of the trophy. I glued a Power Ranger on it. We spray painted it gold with a couple of other little toys that, you know, old toys my kids had. And that's the trophy that they win. And when the kids win it at the end, they go nuts over it. Uh, so we, we've just made it a fun experience. The reason we do it is I want my ninth graders to be able to not only compete, but also be able to relate to our varsity players. Um, I don't like that there is sometimes the disconnect. Your varsity kids think that they're, you know, really high up on the, the totem pole and the ninth graders are really low. Well, in these games, you're all at the same level. So you all got to compete against each other. So it creates a little bit of unity within our program. Um, we have done other things, uh, not so much as an entire program always, but we have we do a lot of team building stuff each week when we go into the team room. Uh, so we, we've played games like Pictionary or there's a game called Funglish that the guys like to play. We do a storytelling game. Um, then we've done kind of traditional things like where you blindfold each other and you, know, you gotta walk each other around and that kind of thing. So we pull lots of different ideas um, and, and we just have our team, our varsity team do that so that they can start to get to know each other. When I was at the community college level, we did something similar, but a lot of it had to do with learning about your teammate because you all came from different communities, different family backgrounds, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, where now we're all from Otsego, so we don't have to learn about our backgrounds. They've been friends forever, but we do have to learn how to communicate and, and learn how to really come together as a team. So we still do a lot of stuff. Um, so I saw that on Twitter um, that you spent some time, I guess, I don't know if you still do or you have, but you're coaching with your dad. So yeah. just talk about that experience of coaching with your father. Uh, my dad likes to tell it that uh, my first year we went 11 and 11 and he wasn't my assistant coach. And my second year on going until now, he still is, that he was my assistant coach. So every conference title we've won, he's been the assistant for. And he's been kind of the one who's made the change in the program. Uh, and, and partly that that's really true is um, my first year, I didn't have an assistant coach. So that was that was tough. My freshman and JV coach kind of pitched in when they could, but they have their own teams to, to go to and to be at games and stuff. So we didn't have uh, somebody there all the time. But my dad has helped us out. It's been tremendous. He, when he retired, he moved down to this area and um, to be around grandkids and family and all that stuff. And he comes to practice and the kids really enjoy having him there. He's been a varsity coach himself um, in soccer and in basketball. Um, so he has a great perspective on things. And it's just a joy to, to have him there. It's 
I love it. I love that he's there. Um, my kids are often in the gym as well. So he gets a chance to interact with his grandkids and be a part of the team. He has great insight. I really respect what he says. He, his demeanor is one that is, is laid back and is, is very conversational with the players, um, which they really enjoy. And just for your listeners, you know, he's approaching 70 years old now. So, you know, sometimes he comes in and he, he sits on a chair and he coaches from a chair. Other times he's up and down the floor. Uh, kind of just depends on how it goes, but the kids really love to have him there and, and I enjoy it too. So it, it's special. I'm glad that he can do it. And that was something I didn't expect when I first took the job, but it's worked out that well, uh, that way. And it's worked really well. So, so yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a really cool thing. Um, so you've had a lot of success as a, as a coach, you're the winningest coach in school history mm -hmm. uh, for the people that didn't know. Um, so what do you think separates you from all the other coaches that you coach against? Uh, I, the way the kids believe in what we do. I mean, I, I think that's, that's it. I, the coaches in our conference have had very nice things to say about, um, about our team and about the way we play. And I don't think that we do anything special, um, X's and O's wise, but I think that we really get after it hard when we're out on the floor. Uh, we don't give up when we get down and we've come from behind and won some games. Um, but the hardest thing sometimes to do is to get your players motivated to play right from the, the get go. And that's something I'm constantly trying to improve on. But once our kids kind of get some sweat going and they get into the game, they really go after it. And that's different than other other teams. Um, they might get kids who can do that for a quarter or two, but they can't play at that same level as we get our kids to play at for four quarters. Um, but with that being said, you know, we have lost games and we've had teams come out with great game plans against us and they've been real battles. Um, and that's that's the fun part of it is when you have a team that goes toe to toe with you that wants to match you. All right, guys, now the execution really becomes important to us. You, you're not going to outrun people or you're not just going to go and work harder than them. When they work as hard as you, now you've got to be able to execute. And you've got to be able to perform uh, with some precision. And that, that's when it's really fun to coach. But that's what I would say the biggest thing has been is the belief in our system. I, I like our offense and I like our defense, but I love it when we play it hard. And so we go after going hard all the time. So, you know, you've had a lot of coaching experience and, you know, one thing about being a coach is that, you know, sometimes you have to get into the referees a little bit. <laughs> so what are your what are your strategies uh, to work the referees, but not, you know, piss them off too much where they don't want to <laughs> give you any calls? Uh, I, I am probably the uh, the wrong person to ask this question, not because I get into referees, but I, I don't talk to them very much. I mean, if, if there's a referee standing next to me or he comes by me, I, I might say something like, you know, that, that wasn't really a very hard foul down here. I think we're getting hammered just as much on this end. And they'll say, yeah, I'll look at it, coach. Uh, sometimes they stand right next to me. I don't say anything to them. I mean, I, I, I don't ever yell at a referee. I, I am probably, and this is going to sound a little crazy because I'm saying it about myself, I'm probably one of the most mellow coaches on the sidelines that most people have ever seen. My philosophy is I will I will coach my teams hard in practice. I'm not a yeller and a screamer, so I, I don't I don't yell and I don't scream at the kids in practice. I don't do it in games. Um, but my philosophy is that if I, I'll coach you hard in practice and I'm going to prepare you for the game, 
it's your job as the player to then go out there and to perform what we've just practiced. And sometimes I do have to motivate. Sometimes, you, you know, in the locker room, you, you do raise your voice or you challenge a kid when they come out. And, I, and it's not a you're messing it up. The message is you're better than that. I need you to go out there and I need you to play, you know, harder. I need you to play smarter. I need you to make better passes or that shot wasn't a, the shot that you take in practice. I need you to go back to doing what you did yesterday in practice. And I, I challenge them. I think that me challenging them, the players gives them a sense of I'm in control. I can do better. I can do this. And when they get back in the game, a lot of times they do exactly what I've just challenged them to do because I've given them something concrete. So I don't remember who said this, but it's something that I've really bought into is your instruction has to be, has to do two things. Your instruction has to be understandable and it has to be actionable. So when I'm coaching, I can't scream down at the other end of the floor or while a kid is running by me and expect them to understand what I'm saying. I mean, there's just not enough time to do that. And then the second thing is whatever I, when I get a chance to talk to them, at a timeout, an out of bounds play, a free throw, I'm calling the kid over. I've got to make it actionable. It's something the kids have to be able to perform. Uh, so a lot of times parents in the stands will, will say something like, oh, catch the ball. Or what are you doing? You know, that can, those aren't actionable items. They're, they're nothing that you might have understood what was said, catch the ball. But how does a kid catch the ball better? You know, you need put two hands up. You know, grab it with two hands first. Come to a jump stop when you catch it. Jump stops, so you can pivot either way. That's something a kid can take with them and do. If they're off balance on a shot, instead of saying, you shouldn't shoot that, then when they come out, hey, you weren't on balance on that shot. Your shot needs, you have to be on balance every single time that you're going to shoot the ball. That gives us the best chance of scoring points. And they yeah, coach. Okay, coach, I got you, coach. That's an actionable item they can do. If I just come out and say, that 15 foot was a horrible shot. Why are you shooting that? They, they can't do anything with that information. So it, it's just bad coaching, in my opinion. So going back to your referees, it's the same thing with the referees. I can yell and throw a fit, and they can tell me to sit down and give me a technical follow if they want. Or when they come by me, I can come and I can say something that they can understand, and I can say something that's actionable to them. So I'm, I'm coaching the referees in some way. It's, hey, you know, number 32 got hit down there. I think we're getting the same thing down on this end. Could you watch it when we get that ball into the post? I'm, I'm asking them to do some, to watch something that they actionably can do rather than saying, you're missing all these calls. Like what game are you watching? Now they're just mad at me. That didn't help. So I try to keep a very controlled uh, stance. Now we've had some referees that are not very good and I don't particularly like having them, but me yelling at them or telling them they're bad doesn't give me any more calls. Um, I, I've had coach uh, referees actually come up to me at halftime. One instance in particular comes to mind. I thought he made the wrong call. And I said, look, look, this, it, it wasn't an over the back situation. You know, all three points didn't make it over. Only two of them made it over. And he came to me after at halftime, he came up and he said, you know what? I talked to the other guys. I think you're right. I think that I made the wrong call on that one. So I apologize for that. The only way a referee is going to do that, I think is if they have respect for you. And I didn't yell and scream at the ref about the wrong call. I just said, this is what I saw. This is what I think the rule is. Sometimes they come back and say, Matt, that's not the rule. This is the rule. And I'm wrong. But in that particular instance, he came out of halftime and he said, I, I was wrong. I apologize. We can't change the play. But he wasn't going to change it if I yelled at him anyways. 
So that's uh, when I say I'm probably the wrong person to ask. I'm not a yeller and screamer. So how do I get them on my side? I make things understandable and actionable for them and my players. I think that goes a long ways. Yeah, no, and that's that's very simple to to understand too. Um, well, this has been great. You know, I really appreciated you have being on the podcast today. You know, you've shared a lot of great things with our listeners. Um, definitely a lot of a lot of uh, ways for young coaches to to learn from. You know, some of the stories that you've shared. So I think everybody's listening to this will really benefit from this episode. Um, so just want to give you an opportunity to kind of give a shout out and plug some of your coaching programs, your mentorship programs, and, you know, what you're doing to help some of the other coaches. Yeah. Well, I, first, thank you for the opportunity to be here. This was awesome to, uh, to be able to talk, you know, just about the philosophy of basketball and stuff. So I appreciate that. Um, I have a website, it's coachmattdennis.com and I run the championship coaches group off that website. And um, that group is really there to support coaches who are trying to build a program. Now we do have middle school coaches and freshman coaches who are part of it. Um, but a lot of varsity coaches who are trying to figure out how do they win you know, games? How do they get their program where they want it to be? And I tell them, you know, anything that I do in my program is fair game. I won't tell you, you have to do it my way, but I certainly will share the things that I found that worked and I will help you think through what will work best in your program. So that's how I work with coaches the, the most. So if anybody else wants information on that, go to coachmattdennis.com and then you can click on the, the championship coaches group. Uh, there's lots of other resources and courses and different things that coaches can do in there, but uh, that's kind of um, ju just part of it. It's really the mentorship and getting to know coaches and meet with them in a group setting and in a one-on-one -on -one setting. That's where the most of the growth goes. All the other stuff is um, they, they can add to their learning anytime that they want. Um, then in terms of connecting with me, the place I spend most of my time is on Twitter. So if the Twitter is just at coach Matt Dennis, I do a little bit on Facebook and a little bit on Instagram on again, it's just at coach Matt Dennis. Um, but Twitter is certainly where I'm most active. All right, you guys heard it. Everybody go check that out and go support Coach Dennis. And uh, once again, just thank you for joining the podcast today. All right, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.